invite you to turn in the scriptures tonight to the book of Job, to chapter 32. Job, chapter 32. As we continue our series of messages on Job, best laid plans are left to God's providences, aren't they? We can uh, make our plans. I thought I would be finished with Job before we left uh, for Costa Rica, but uh, God had other plans in line than that. So you'll have to be content to wait uh, a couple of more weeks to finish the ser- series, the Lord willing. Uh, next Lord's Day, uh, our brother uh, Ben Bissett, a seminary student at Puritan, will be leading our morning and evening worship. Job chapter 32. Let's hear the very words of God. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends, because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job, because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he burned with anger. Then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged to understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom, God may vanish him, vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share, and I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray for God's blessing upon this breathed out word of his as well. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, once again, 
Uh, we praise you for the opportunity to meet together, Father, on this evening, and also to open your word. And we ask your blessing on its reading this evening. Also ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings the, the message, that he illuminates this word, Father, that uh, you will open our hearts and minds, that uh, we will understand, we will understand what you have in mind for this evening. And we praise you that whatever you have in mind comes to pass, that it never fails, and we praise you, dear Lord. All this in the precious name of our Savior alone we pray. Amen. Amen. Something is locked. That's what's happening in the book of Job. Something is locked. And what has been locked is the question of why do the righteous suffer? We were introduced a couple of weeks ago to Job. We were told already in the first chapter that Job was a righteous man. By the time we get to the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have a man who in many respects is in ruins. Why do the righteous suffer? That's what's locked. As we look tonight at not only Job 32, but this whole section of Scripture, we're going to try different keys. Three different keys are going to be used to try to open this lock. Why do the righteous suffer? Only one of them is going to fit. Only one of these keys is going to open up the lock and reveal to us why it is that the righteous suffer. Here are the three keys. First of all, there is the key of the three friends. If you recall, last uh, when we were finishing this, as Job sat in dust and ashes, here come three of his friends, and they sit there in silence for a week, appalled by that which they see, sort of stunned by that which has occurred in Job's life. He has lost his riches. He has lost his servants. He has lost his children. And he himself is suffering with horrible sores all over his body. But then their mouths are open. They think they know the answer to why the righteous suffer. They think they have the key. And for chapter after chapter after chapter, they keep trying to jam the same key in the lock. You've probably done that a few times. You've probably been at a door, you know the door, you know the key, and you look at the keys on your keychain, and you know, I know this is the one that fits. I know this is the one that works. And you just stand at the door, and you just keep trying to get that key in the door. Problem is, you probably have the wrong keychain, and so it's the wrong key that you're actually trying to use. That's what's happening here. Chapter after chapter, 
Speech after speech is made by these three friends. All trying to use the very same key to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? And here's the key. In their view, all suffering is a punishment from God for sin. That's, 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 their, that's the key they're holding. All punishment, all suffering, excuse me, is a punishment for sin. Job is obviously suffering. There's no disputing that. Therefore, their conclusion is, Job has committed some sin for which he is suffering. Why is righteous Job suffering? He has committed some sin that God is punishing him for, and that is why he's suffering. Turn with me back to Job chapter 22. This is an example of one of those speeches. We could turn to many of them, but probably one example will suffice here. Job 22, pick it up at verse 5. Now, now understand, here's Job having lost everything, sitting there with all of these sores, and one of his friends speaks up, Eliaphaz, and, and here is his answer to why this has all happened. Verse 5. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and the flood of waters covers you. Job, you sinned somewhere. You did something. Whether it's some widow you robbed, whether it's somebody you weren't hospitable to, Job, you sinned. That's why you're suffering. That key was tried in Jesus' day too. Remember, they, they still are believing that in Jesus' day. They bring to Jesus a man who is blind. He was born blind. And so they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin? That's why he's blind. Or did his parents sin? That's why he's blind. Now, they're simply trying to see how wise, how smart Jesus is. They do not expect the answer they're going to get. They expect Jesus to either say, well, the man committed a sin while he was in the womb. 
he did this, or the parents committed this sin, maybe they had unlawful relations, maybe they weren't married yet and the child was conceived, so therefore the baby is blind. This is what God does when there's sin, God punishes, people suffer. But do you recall Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer to them was, neither. This man was born blind in order to show forth the glory of God. It's got nothing to do with sin. But you know, that's still around in this day and in this age. Heard a story this, just this past week of a family in the Netherlands who... Uh, during the German occupation, sided with the Germans in it all. They weren't part of the resistance. They were, they were part of, of the, those who wanted to cooperate with Germany. So much so that they eventually moved to Germany during the occupation. Their young child, young boy, developed TB and died. You know what the people in the church and the rest of the family said? See, that's God's punishment. God punished them for siding with the Germans and moving to Germany, therefore their son died. Something we often jump to. We often are like these three friends of Job. Our explanation of suffering is this. Somebody sinned. Because there's suffering, that person must have sinned. In our non-Christian world and environment, we run into it with the, quote, laws of karma, right? If you do bad, bad happens. If you don't live right, if you aren't nice, you're not going to be treated nicely. It's the law of karma. They keep chapters. After chapter, after chapter, speech after speech. They take turns coming at Job. Come on, Job, admit it. You sinned. Come on, you sinned. What is it, Job? Come on, out with it. Lay it out before us, Job. Come on, just confess it. If you confess it, this will all go away. They keep trying it in the lock, but it isn't working. It isn't the answer. I'm somewhat mystified in, in my own way of looking at the book of Job, why we need so many chapters. But then it occurred to me, it's because we keep coming back to it. It's because this is always our fallback position as well, so often. Suffering is a result of sin, it's God's punishment. If somebody is suffering, then they must have committed some sin. And that's our explanation. God provides us with three spokespersons of that viewpoint. For most of the book of Job. And it's all going to come back. That's not the key. That's not the answer. So let's try another key. This is the key that Job tries. This is Job's answer to the question, why am I 
as a righteous person suffering. Now, most of the time in these chapters, if you read through them, Job is basically defending himself. I have not done what you're charging me with. I have not sinned in the way that you are saying I sinned. I have not done some grievous sin for which God is hammering me for. God isn't punishing me for some specific sin that I have committed. Job's conclusion, chapter 21, 34, How then will you comfort me with empty nothingness? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. You're lying. This charge that I have committed a sin is a lie. It isn't the truth. I am not a sinner in the way in which you are depicting me. So then the friend said, so why are you suffering, Job? Here comes Job's key. I'm suffering because God, who is sovereign, is arbitrary. See, the hard thing about Job's speeches in the book of Job is Job uses the right language. He often is, is expressing the wisdom of God. But Job's answer is this. God is simply arbitrary. Sometimes the wicked suffer, sometimes the righteous suffer. That's just the way it is. Why? Because God is God. And because God is God, God can do what God wants to do. So sometimes we suffer, sometimes we don't. It's sort of the, the old, what was the, the Doris Day thing? Hey, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Hey, Sarah, Sarah. God just does what God wants to do. That's it. That's the reason. We have a God who is arbitrary. That's the key. Job keeps trying to fit into the question, the lock. Why am I suffering? The answer Job comes back to over and over and over again is that an all-wise God is simply operating arbitrarily. There is no reason, there is no purpose for that which is happening, that which is taking place. Job chapter 23. 14 through 17. Job speaking. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. See this is Job's point. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what God's going to do because God is just arbitrary. Tomorrow I may suffer and I'm terrified. Things may go right for a week and then the next day it all may fall apart. I'm terrified by God. I'm terrified by His presence. I am in dread of Him because I never know what to expect is coming. 
Because you see, he controls the wind. He controls nature. He controls the fire. God can do all of this thing. It is all known to him. But at a moment, at an instant, he may fire out his lightning and kill me. This is his explanation as to why what has happened to him has happened to him. Keeps trying that key. Some way, Lord. You really have no meaning. You really have no purpose in what you're doing. Go to Job chapter 29. Listen to him again. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old. As in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, the aged rolled and rose and stood the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand upon their mouth the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth when the ear heard it it called me blessed and when the eye saw it it approved because i delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had done it see i've done everything right oh i wish for those days when god was with me when god was my friend Do you hear what he's saying? I'm a righteous person. I have committed no sin to deserve this suffering. God is just arbitrarily bringing suffering upon whom he desires to bring suffering. And he's left me. There are many who live this way. There are many who look at Job and say, that's the answer. That's the key. He's right. My friends, let me be very clear. Job is absolutely wrong. We have a whole book in which people have raised up this man's speeches as if somehow or another he's right. And he isn't. He's wrong. God is not an arbitrary God who simply decides on some sort of whim, today, <laughs> I'm going to make that person's life miserable. Today, I'm going to make that person's life miserable. Chapter after chapter. That's Elihu's point when we come to chapter 32. So now we come to the third key. The key that is in the mouth of this young man. See, that's what he's made known in this chapter. Hope you caught it. He's the youngest of all those who are there. And he's just kept his mouth shut because he thought 
that sooner or later, one of these aged men, whether the three friends or Job, was actually going to speak the truth. But nobody has. Notice what prefaces chapter 32. The words of Job are ended. Nobody's talking anymore. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, we've heard from the three friends. They've tried the key. It doesn't fit. It doesn't unlock it. We've heard from Job. And that doesn't unlock it. And now this young man, Elihu, appears. I want you to note, first of all, his response. His re- response to the three friends is anger. He is burning with anger. But he's burning with anger not only at the three friends, he's burning with anger at Job. I sat here and I listened to all of this talk, all of this gobbledygook, and nobody has spoken the truth. Nobody has used the right key to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? I've sat here in silence, haven't said anything, but now I'm going to speak. The three friends burns with anger. To Job, he burns with anger. Now let me give you a little clue. When we come to chapter 42, as we draw to the close of the book, God speaks. And you know what God does? God comes to the three friends and says, you guys need to repent. You guys need to repent of the words that you have spoken because you have spoken lies. Now, who said that? Elihu. But at the very beginning of chapter 42, you know what happens? Job repents. Job repents and says to the Lord, I have sinned. Who's right? See, as as we look at what happens in chapter 42, what ends up being testified by the Lord is, Elihu, you're right. The three friends are wrong. And Job is wrong too. Suffering of the righteous is not a punishment for the sin that they have committed. And I am not an arbitrary God bringing suffering into people's lives for no reason and for no purpose. So understand that first of all. Then step back. What is the key that Elihu is going to use? Go to chapter 33.
go down to verse 14. We'll pick it up there. This is still Elihu speaking. He's burned with anger against the three friends, burned with anger against Job. We know from chapter 42 he is in the right position on this. This person speaking, this Elihu, is giving us the right key. We know that because of God's actions and because of Job's words. So what is the key that Elihu is holding that unlocks this question of why do the righteous suffer? Verse 14. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. See, do you see Job? Right? There's Job, isn't it? That's Job he's talking about. Man is rebuked on his bed, pain with his bed and with continual strife in his bone so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were there, his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let my flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Do you hear the key? Why do the righteous suffer? Here is the answer. The righteous suffer for their good. That's the answer. The righteous suffer for their good. It isn't out of God's anger like the three friends were charging. Oh, it's a punishment. It's a punishment. It's a punishment. No, not for the righteous. For the righteous, they suffer for their good. Out of, not out of God's anger. It is out of his love. Because what happens when we suffer? What happens? Just exactly what Elihu said. We turn to God. The righteous turns to his God. And God draws nearer and closer to him. 
If we are, let's just say, as those who, you see, this isn't a salvation issue. This is about God forming us and transforming us into the glorious image of his son. God uses suffering in our lives to move us from a mile from him to a half mile from him. Because when we suffer, we turn to him. We look to him. And he hears and he answers. It is out of his love. He sent the suffering so that we would draw closer. Draw suffering so that we come close. Draw suffering so that we embrace him. So that we wrap our arms around God and say, Father, I love you. And we feel the arms of God wrapping around us. And God says, I'm so glad you came home. You've drawn closer to me. Those of you in Thursday morning Bible study will hear this refrain, don't you? This is Naomi. Her life is full of suffering. She turns and says, call me bitter. God's arbitrary. Brought a famine. He made my husband make me move to Moab. Then my husband dies. My son dies. I got nothing. Just call me bitter. And not once in the book does God ever allow her to use that name. Because to God, she is Naomi. The one that he is drawing back to himself. All that she has experienced is so that she might come to know her kinsman, Redeemer. Even out of the mouth of Elihu here in the Old Testament, why does God do this? So that we go to the one who is the mediator. Why do the righteous suffer? Because God loves you. And he wants you closer to himself. He's drawing you in. He's not punishing you. He's not forcing you away. See, that was Job's answer. I'm no, not his friend anymore because I'm suffering. God wants nothing to do with me. No, Job, you're wrong. You're suffering because God wants to draw you closer to himself. Why did the righteous man who ever lived, who never sinned, suffer so that God might draw you to himself. See, this isn't a question about sin and punishment. This isn't a question about the arbitrariness of God. This is about the love of God. This is what the three friends, this is what Job missed. But this is what Elihu, he takes the key and he puts it into the lock and it turns and it opens the glorious truth of God's word to you and I.
we suffer because God loves us so much. He wants to draw us to himself. Because when we suffer, we turn to him. Job spent all his time justifying himself. He spent no time dealing with the love of God. Elihu says, you're wrong. You're wrong, Job. And the New Testament confirms the fact that Elihu speaks the truth. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. James 1, 2, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness to have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why is God doing this? So that we may be perfect and complete in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's the Apostle Paul. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us from the dead. Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You know what the statute of God is that we learn by affliction? That God loves us and he wants us close to him. See, the friends aren't fleeing to God. Job isn't fleeing to God. Elihu says, the reason suffering occurs is so that we, by the love of God, come closer to him. Father, thank you. We don't know what this week will bring. We don't know what may happen, what may take place, what news may occur in our own lives. Lord, we can be confident based upon the truths of your word. 
that if we meet with suffering and affliction, it's not a punishment. You already punished our sin. It hung on a cross. Suffered all the punishment that our sin could ever deserve. And Lord, you're not just being arbitrary. This isn't just the way it goes. Lord, you bring suffering out of your love to bring us closer to you. Even as parents, we discipline our children not out of hatred, but out of our love to draw them closer. Thank you for loving us enough to even send suffering into our lives. In Christ's name, for Christ's glory, God's people say, Amen.